earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends, and thanks for joining me today. Whether you're driving in your car, listening on a mobile device, or possibly even catching the podcast. Friends, one of the classic Christian writers I've enjoyed reading and quoting a lot is A.W. Tozer. Tozer, back in the early 1960s, became the editor of a publication called The Alliance Witness and authored a series of editorials with his goal to instruct the heart that seeks to follow on to know the Lord. In 1964, these editorials were compiled and published in a book that has become a Christian classic called That Incredible Christian. In the introduction, Anita Bailey, then managing editor, said this in part. Someone said that while Dr. A.W. Tozer always sought to introduce sinners to their Savior, he longed to help saints to see the greatness of God and to experience the life of victory and joy through surrender and faith. Such a life may not be always easy, but at the last it will be all that matters. Well, friends, in that spirit, I'm honored to share with you some excerpts from that incredible Christian. It is my hope that today, in part one of this series, leading up to Jesus' resurrection, we will all see that the path to the passion of the Christ is peppered with divine paradoxes. Paradoxes that we must come to understand and be willing to embrace if we are to see the greatness of God and experience the life of victory and joy through surrender and faith. So, our word for today is paradox. And while the word itself is not in our Bible, the concept surely is. And friends will discover that these paradoxes are actually calls to surrender our baser self or our lower life. In other words, the soul life as our New Testament describes it. Listen to Jesus' words in Luke nine twenty three and 24, which he spoke to the 5,000 who were just fed. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life, and here's the word, suke life, or soul life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life, same word, for my sake, he's the one who will save it. By the way, friends, suke is where we get our English word psych and such words as psychiatry, psychology, etc. These disciplines delve into the realm of and behavior of the human soul and seat of our emotions. Friends, one function of the cross is to put to death or crucify our suke life and separate or distance ourselves from that old life and its habit patterns. 
Now the other side of the coin is Christ's resurrection, which infuses us with Zoe life, or the higher life, salvation life, if you will. In other words, the life that brings not only duration, you know, everlasting life, but also dimension. In other words, a whole new dimension to our lives. Living for the suke life always takes away from and endangers the Zoe life, our salvation life. You see, friends, Zoe life is the path with divine paradoxes, paradoxes that we must come to understand and be willing to embrace. Perhaps this is a good time to define paradox. It's a seemingly contradictory statement, proposal, or event that when investigated further turns out to be well-founded or even true. And with this as the backstory, I am honored to introduce Dr. A.W. Tozer, who wrote these insightful and inspiring words. At the heart of the Christian system lies the cross of Christ with its divine paradox. The power of Christianity appears in its antipathy, and by that he meant its aversion or its opposition to. So he says... It's antipathy toward, never in agreement with, the ways of fallen man. The truth of the cross is revealed in its contradictions. The cross stands in bold opposition to the natural man. Its philosophy runs contrary to the processes of the unregenerate mind. So that Paul could say bluntly that the preaching of the cross is to them that are perishing foolishness. To try and find common ground between the message of the cross and man's fallen reason is to try the impossible, and if persisted in, must result in an impaired reason, a meaningless cross, and powerless Christianity. But let us observe the true Christian as he puts into practice the teachings of Christ and his apostles. Note the contradictions. The Christian believes that in Christ he has died, yet he is more alive than before, and he fully expects to live forever. He walks on earth while seated in heaven, and though born on earth, he finds that after his conversion he is not at home here. Like the night hawk, which in the air is the essence of grace and beauty, but on the ground is awkward and ugly. So the Christian appears at his best in the heavenly places, but does not fit well into the ways of the society into which he was born. The Christian soon learns that if he would be victorious as a son of heaven among men on earth, he must not follow the common pattern of mankind, but rather the contrary that he may be safe, he puts himself in jeopardy. He loses his life to save it, and is in danger of losing it if he attempts to preserve it. He goes down to get up. If he refuses to go down, he is already down, but when he starts down, he is on his way up. He is strongest when he is weakest, and weakest when he is strong. Though poor, he has the power to make others rich. But when he becomes rich, his ability to enrich others vanishes. He has most after he has given most away, and has least when he possesses most. He may be able and often is highest when he feels lowest, and most sinless when he is most conscious of sin." 
He is wisest when he knows that he knows not, and knows least when he has acquired the greatest amount of knowledge. He sometimes does most by doing nothing, and goes furthest by standing still. In heaviness he manages to rejoice and keep his heart even in sorrow. The paradoxical character of the Christian life is revealed constantly. For instance, the Christian believes that he is saved now. Nevertheless, he expects to be saved later and looks forward joyfully to future salvation. He fears God, but is not afraid of him. In God's presence, he feels overwhelmed and undone. Yet there is nowhere he would rather be than in that presence. He knows that he has been cleansed from his sin, yet he is painfully conscious that in his flesh dwells no good thing. He feels that he is in his own right altogether less than nothing, yet he believes without question he is the apple of God's eye, and that for him the eternal Son became flesh and died on the cross of shame. The Christian is a citizen of heaven, and to that sacred citizenship he acknowledges first allegiance. Yet he may love his earthly country with that intensity of devotion that caused John Ox to pray, O oh God, give me Scotland or I die. He cheerfully expects before long to enter that bright world above, but he is in no hurry to leave this world and is quite willing to await the summons of his heavenly Father. And he is unable to understand why the critical unbeliever should condemn him for this. It all seems so natural and right in the circumstances that he sees nothing inconsistent about it. The cross-carrying Christian, furthermore, is both a confirmed pessimist and an optimist of which is to be found nowhere else on earth. When he looks at the cross, he is a pessimist, for he knows that the same judgment that fell on the Lord of glory condemns in that one act all nature and all the world of men. He rejects every hope outside of Christ, because he knows that man's noblest effort is only dust building on dust. Yet he is calmly, restfully optimistic. If the cross condemns the world, the resurrection of Christ guarantees the ultimate triumph of good throughout the universe. Through Christ all will be well at last, and the Christian awaits the consummation. Incredible Christian! Well, friends, I have no doubt that we can all relate to these insights by author A.W. Tozer and even find some humor in them as well as we think of our own life story and feelings. As we end the season counting down to celebrating the resurrection, I felt it fitting to take the four weeks before Resurrection Day and share with us all the path to the Passion of the Christ. And on this path we'll discover some divine paradoxes of the Christian life, because the principles of God's kingdom conflict with the principles of the world. The life path of the Christ follower differs greatly with the life path of the world because of our identification with Christ and his life path. So today in part one, friends, we're going to look at greatness God's way. And our jumping off point will be Matthew 18, 1 through 4. Chronologically speaking, we're probably about three weeks before the crucifixion and about two weeks before Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which we now celebrate as Palm Sunday. Now, Jesus doesn't have much time to reinforce and instill into his followers' minds the divine paradoxes of the kingdom of God. 
contrasting the heavenly value system with the world's value system. So in this series, I've chosen four particular paradoxes that appear between Matthew 18 and Matthew 21, where Matthew 21 signals Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, our Palm Sunday. Well, the first paradox I'd like us to see is recorded in Matthew 18, 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, for the backstory here, my take is that at that time may be tipping us off to some previous events beginning in chapter 17. The transfiguration, Jesus healing a demon-possessed boy, predicting his death a second time, and the temple tax incident where Jesus solicits Peter to take a coin out of a fish's mouth. Well, Matthew continues, He, Jesus, called a little child to him and placed the child among them and said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the position of this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. I suspect that Jesus calling a young child to himself prods the disciples to think back to his healing of the demon-possessed boy. I'm guessing here, but maybe they both were in the same age bracket. Why did Jesus choose a young child as his object lesson? As his paradox, if you will. Notice how he contrasts the mindset of the kingdom of God and the mindset of the world. Well, we'll need to familiarize ourselves with the cultural environment, the first century Greco-Roman world, and particularly the status of children in that society. In general, children were typically seen as without power, without economic resources, lacking self-sufficiency, having no measurable influence, and totally depending on others. In this first century society, children occupied the lowest rung on the ladder. They were virtually insignificant. They couldn't bestow honor or power and didn't possess pride in a position because they had no position in the community. In a sense, we could say that children were considered the least important members of society. Perhaps now we can see more clearly why Jesus chose a child to teach a lesson about humility. Notice here, friends, that in spite of the fact that children were typically cast in a negative light, Jesus calls attention to positive and innocent qualities of children. For Jesus, children are innocent, humble, unpretentious, teachable, and willing to trust their parents, and particularly in that culture, their father. Here, Jesus was attempting to teach his disciples greatness God's way. In God the Father's eyes, greatness is rooted in the exact opposite trait that the world exalts. We might wonder why this issue even arose among the disciples. Well, it so happens that three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each record this incident of becoming like a little child. Well, curiously, just a few chapters ahead in Matthew 20, another incident occurs that is likely close to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, recorded in chapter 21. You remember this story? A mother comes to Jesus and requests if one of her two sons can sit on Jesus' right and the other son on his left in the kingdom. During Jesus' reply to her, he asks the sons, Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. I believe Jesus meant the cup of suffering, or even the cup of death. 
Jesus then adds, You will indeed drink from my cup. He then tells them only the Father decides who sits on his right and left. We then learn that the disciples became indignant with the two sons' reply. So Jesus calls them together and tells them, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Ah, notice Jesus is pointing to the root of the issue, the disciples' preoccupation with greatness and rank in the kingdom. Friends, let's remember that the disciples, like all the Jews in the Roman Empire, eagerly anticipated overthrowing the hated Roman government and seeing the establishment of their own messianic kingdom. The Jews were salivating for their Messiah to restore justice and peace. They couldn't wait to rid themselves of Rome's oppressive hand. Remember, the term Messiah was charged with political and military overtones. During these last few weeks of Jesus' ministry, his followers could taste the coming messianic revolt. Finally, they would come into their own power, their own rulership. Imagine, however, their dismay when Jesus told them that greatness comes from humility, from becoming a servant, a slave, if you will, from becoming last in that society, becoming like a child, humbling themselves. You see, friends, the path to greatness God's way is through humility and servanthood, humbly serving others. Oddly, the argument over who would be the greatest in God's kingdom ran counter to everything Jesus stood for. The paradox here is that true greatness is measured by how we serve others. It's almost funny that Jesus demonstrated this by showing loving care to a child to get his disciples to understand what mattered most. The lesson here translates for us in the here and now by considering a few crucial questions. Do we show partiality in our service to others? Do we crave positions of influence so we can merely climb the social ladder, the ladder of success, or even the church ladder? Friends, greatness God's way, according to kingdom values, is a matter of the inner life, and the inner life manifesting itself outwardly by a spirit of humility, a desire to serve both God and our fellow human beings. On top of that, it includes a willingness to be seen as the least important in God's kingdom. God's kingdom greatness is not position, office, leadership, power, influence, fame, ability, great accomplishments, or success. You see, friends, it's not so much what we do for God as what we are in spirit before him. So for us Christ followers, greatness God's way assumes we will become great in the right areas. Faith, humility, godly character, wisdom, self-control, patience, and love. Friends, underlying true greatness is unreserved love for and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and being faithful wherever he chooses to place us. My take on these petty squabbles of the disciples over who's the greatest just reveals that they all the more thought Jesus came to establish an earthly kingdom where they would enjoy positions of power. 
and also that they viewed their discipleship as a means to attaining their own aspirations. Following Jesus was a convenient and effective means of attaining these goals. However, friends, just like Jesus' disciples, we too must learn that service in God's kingdom is unique. Greatness in God's kingdom is measured differently than in any other human group or organization. Jesus established no position of authority for one person to lord it over others in the kingdom of God, and even now in the body of Christ. Greatness God's way and in God's kingdom is defined by assuming the role of a servant. The role model for ministry in the church, even today, is the one who came as the suffering servant. Domination and exercising positional authority stem from the value system of the world. Church leaders should not be climbing ambitiously to places of prominence or privilege. Leaders are to serve with the same spirit of humility as their Lord Jesus, who said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, and who himself gave his life for others. Friends, leaders in the church are to exercise their function, not the power of their office. Authority in the church is not to become an end in itself, as it has sometimes sadly become. Church leaders are church servants. Well, the last incident I want to share today occurs immediately following the Passover observance, or the Last Supper. It is recorded in Luke chapter 22. Please read through chapter 22 on your own, as time won't permit me to do so. But suffice it to say here that even at the very emotional final Passover observance with Jesus and his disciples, his disciples again fall prey to their old habit of worrying about rank and status. One verse here will do the trick. Right after Jesus takes the cup and says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, Luke informs us that in chapter 22-23, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered the greatest. Do you believe that? You see, friends, we have to put on first century sandals and realize that in the Greco-Roman world, humility was the scandalous virtue. A humble person was a slave, a servile, groveling, wretched individual. So I think it's pretty amazing then that these very disciples, particularly those who were led by the Holy Spirit to write the New Testament letters, instructed the fledgling church to cultivate humility. And that humility was not an option for Christ's followers. It was essential. Friends, a biblical way of life knows nothing about looking out for number one. It happens to be just the opposite, doesn't it? This paradox is reinforced by John the Baptist, who said, He must increase, and I must decrease. In other words, he must become greater, and I must become less. It's a great day for the Christian when we realize that life is one of downward mobility, not upward mobility. Yes, friends, we actually descend into greatness, and this is greatness God's way. Well, friends, I can see we've come to the end of our program today. I hope it has been both edifying as well as challenging, and it would be my honor to be praying for you as we all grow in humility and practice being servants in God's kingdom. 
The Apostle Peter said it best, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you at the proper time. Well, my friend and terrific engineer Ramon will close today's broadcast with an email where you may write me. This email is also where you may contact me to learn about how you can financially help this listener-supported program. Won't you please consider joining a Word from the Word support team? I'd be truly grateful. Thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.